Good evening. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, we really consider you to be our family here. While we are, um, for a short period of time, we, we expect here in the US. Um, and we uh, just wanted to say that we are going to the South Church plant, so that's why um, some of you um, we have not yet met, and it's a shame. I really wanted to have met um, more people than we have, but COVID. Uh, so I'm, I'm just very uh, glad to be here and wanted to say thanks to the session. And um, we're going to today open our Bibles uh, in the book of Haggai, chapter 1. So I would like to also invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Haggai 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown, uh, planted much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each one of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld their, their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grains, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost for your word, which was inspired by your Holy Spirit and also preserved for us today. Thank you for you are God who speaks to us. And you, O oh Lord, are so willing to move our hearts and steer up our spirit that you have also given us not only the word, but the presence of your Holy Spirit tonight with us. We ask those things in Jesus' name, that you would do this 
for us and for your glory. Amen. Well, as it happens every year, when September 11th approached this time around, I saw some comments and some articles about the terrorist attacks just popping up here and there in my social media platforms. But this time, I don't know why, perhaps because I'm living here in the US, I became much more interested in the subject, much more than ever. So I have to say that I binge-watched some of the news, <laughs> old news, and I read a lot about it. I don't know why. I was so interested. And at first, it was difficult to believe that 19 years had passed since that day. And another thing that I had never realized is that although I knew I remembered very well where I was and exactly what I was doing when I first heard the news, I'm pretty sure that most of you can remember that as well, I was surprised that I, I actually remember a lot of that day, maybe probably the, the whole day. I remember the classes that I, I attended that day. I remember exactly how the conversations went with my friends. Um, I was just a teenager, so not very profound. Um, but I, I remember what I ate on that day. I remember so much. And I was thinking, how was it to you know, experience that through uh, you know, the, the eyes of an American here? So I was just on my YouTube, and then I, this video called my, uh, caught my attention, really. And the video shows just exactly what was on TV on that fatal morning before uh, everything happened. It's actually quite eerie. I'll let you look at that later, but seeing the anchor of one morning show saying, there is something in the air, just minutes before the first plane hit the North Tower. Or another reporter saying, America is quiet, perhaps too quiet. Yeah, I don't think that those words aged very well today. But in retrospect, if you, if you look at those videos, you see nothing very important seemed to be happening. One of the channels were um, just showing a bunch of women in purple. That was the news that they were covering. Um, in a reunion, just a bunch of women decided to wear purple at the same time. And that was what was on TV in one of the channels right when it, all, of this, all of a sudden, that quiet, beautiful, very light-hearted morning would turn into complete sorrow as thousands of people were slaughtered with cruelty. And as the president would announce, America is under attack. And so much has happened and changed because of that. It's impressive, worldwide. Then I also watched some survivor accounts, which were very, very sobering. And then some videos of reporters covering the tremendous amount of work that had to be done in the aftermath at Ground Zero. And I was really shocked to know that it took them nine months. Did you know that? Nine months of work, hard work, just to clean up the area. And the wreckage and the amount of debris, the rubble, is just amazing to, amazing to look at. But what really was haunting was to see the things that were left by people there. The shoes, the cars, mundane things that really reminded you of the people who work there, who are trying to escape that but also of the people who went into that, into that just to rescue some people, and perhaps knowing, perhaps not knowing, that was going to be their graves. But amid all the sorrow, perplexity, and resentment, in the hours and days that followed, if you watch the interviews, you see this, or better, you hear a refrain. Everybody was saying, we need to bounce back. Maybe you remember this. We need to rebuild. It's the first thing a lot of people said. We need to stand up. In our text this evening, we'll see something similar. 
a people who had suffered a tremendous loss, but who had to rebuild their lives. We're going to see also that God cared for them, taking them to experience His presence in a renewed way. In our text, as we, said, uh, as we read, we see the people of God, or better, what remained of it, the remnant, as it, as it was called here, back in the land, back in Jerusalem, after a long captivity in Babylon and Assyria. And the way they had taken into captivity was really brutal, as brutal as can be. You can read uh, or binge-watch the news of those days, uh, reading the Book of Lamentations. It was similar to what I just did. But then, after those events, 50 years later, to be more precise, God stirred up the King Cyrus, a new king, to allow the people of God to go back and to rebuild the temple. He actually gave orders to that effect. So a small number of people, the people of God, the remnant, came back and started rebuilding the temple. They laid the foundations. And after initial excitement under the leadership of Zerubbabel and of Ezra, they had opposition from the people around them, and the work stopped completely. When Haggai, in our text, comes around, as we just read, he had to bring a word of rebuke from the Lord. Because, mind you, 19 years had passed since King Cyrus had allowed them to rebuild the temple. And 19 years later, no one seemed to care about it. No one seemed to care about the temple anymore. The sin that God is condemning them for, the sin that is being called out by the prophet, is really that they had become way too comfortable. Way too comfortable. Let's put it this way. If America was too quiet, Israel was too comfortable. Of course, comfort is not always a sin, is it? After all, we're Reformed, we know comfort is good. We have one comfort, and we know who he is. Comfort is not always a sin. But here, I want to point out three ways we can see that this comfort they had was a sinful comfort, and that they needed to repent from it, and we will see how. First, they had become practical materialists, as I would say. I will explain what that means. Second, they grew used to the ruins of the temple. And third, they wanted to worship God without investing the energy and the resources necessary for that. And then we'll see how God brought them back and how they repented. Hopefully we will learn something for us today. First, they had become practical materialists. Materialism, what is it? A materialist is a person who lives, or believes, I should say, that the only thing that really exists are things that have matter in them. They don't believe that God exists. A materialist does not believe in angels, much less on the devil. They don't believe that humans have souls or anything else that is not possible to be observed, at least in theory, by a rigorous scientific method. Everything is just matter in motion. That's what a materialist is. And I'm not saying that these people of God here at this point, they are materialists philosophically. No, because they don't believe in those things, it doesn't seem. But here we see that their lives show us that they lived like materialists, or they were going towards that. Can you imagine if 19 years later, just, just now, the people of New York were still living with the wreckage, with the rubble, in a place where 
the World Trade Center used to be. See, can you imagine that? We would have to ask why. What are they thinking? Or what they have been doing for 19 years? Is it, is it, is it that they didn't have time? Really? You know, time is almost never a good excuse, is it, for not doing something? Kids or and sometimes adults as well, we, we would say, oh, I didn't have time to do that. But deep down you know you had time. The problem was with your priorities. And that's exactly why God is condemning here for their carelessness. Their priorities were skewed. They have had enough time. But instead of being busy rebuilding the temple, they were busy doing something else. They were busy building their own houses. See verses 2 and 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time has not yet come for us to rebuild the Lord's house. Verse 4. Then God asks, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? See, they had nice houses. They were busy building their own properties. And for some reason, they were saying that it was not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. I was thinking about this and thought maybe, maybe they had a theological reason for that. Maybe. I don't know. Like if they were proto-hyper-Calvinists. Have you heard of hyper-Calvinism? Oh, if God wants to build his house, he would do that without us. Something like that. I don't know. Um, but most, most likely, I would say, they were just not willing to do the work. They were just not willing to commit time and energy. They had other priorities. The fact is, they knew very well that the house of the Lord had to be rebuilt. That's not a problem with their um, thinking. That's not what God, God calls them out for. They did not deny the importance of the house of the Lord, but they said it's not yet time. Now, it was their practice that was lacking, not their theology, not their beliefs. They, they were not materialists, but their practice seemed to point in another direction. Their priorities were so skewed that they lived like, just like they didn't care about the temple of the Lord. Their lives testified to a faith that their mouths were not professing, but their lives did. Our houses first, our comfort first, God's temple later. That's basically it. And if they were being comforted by this idea that the time was not yet come, and that was their comfort, then God was here to confront them, to challenge their priorities. He calls them to assess their times. Is it really time for you to be doing this and not that? And consider your ways, your manners. Give careful thought to your ways. These are words that God repeats here. With that, he's revealing where their hearts really were. Their hearts were not in glorifying and enjoying God. Their hearts were actually not in having communion with God. You know, God's temple was very, very low in their priorities, 19 years. But do you know how important God's temple is in God's plan? For God himself, how high his temple is in his priorities. It is difficult to overstate just how much the temple or the dwelling place of God means um, for his relationship with, the, with his people. You may have never realized this, but the idea of God dwelling with his people really traverses the whole Bible. From the first page to the last one, before Solomon built the temple, before Moses raised the tabernacle, before Noah built the ark, all things that point to the presence of God with his people, God himself was the first one who built his house. You can read that in Genesis. It's called the Garden of Eden. We tend to think of the Garden of Eden as 
Adam and Eve's house? But no, actually it was God's house, built by himself for his worship. Adam was just called by God to keep it, which meant cultivated and also guarded against defilement. It's very similar to the call of the Levites. And there are just many other ways in which you can see that the Garden of Eden really resembles or is called, um, uh, again, in our imagination, in the architecture and function of the tabernacle and of the temple. Eden was the first place for God to dwell with his people. God really cared about it. Ever since our parents failed and Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, then the whole history of redemption is really a history of God building a new house where he will dwell with his people forever. A place where he would perfectly and eternally confer himself, give himself to a holy people in this holy place through a perfect and obedient federal head representative. That's it. That is the whole history of redemption. Now for those people, at that time of the prophet Haggai, God had provided them with the temple. They had and they could enjoy God's presence. The temple being just one uh, step in the process of God rebuilding this perfect temple for his dwelling with his people. They had been separated for, from this temple for a long, long time, 50 years as I said. And then now, God had moved heaven and earth, even used the most powerful person in the world to make that worship happen again in that place. And they just didn't care about it. They could, if they were willing to put the effort, have built a temple and experienced according to the scriptures and through the sacrificial system, grace and enjoy union and communion with God. But without the temple, I ask you, without a temple, how could they worship God? You see, we normally don't think about the temple as having you know, such, an important, um, uh, su such an importance because we don't need this temple. We, do, we don't need this uh, sanctuary, this place to worship God. We don't need this. We can worship uh, in a barn. Shout out to the South uh, Church plant. You can uh, worship God in the fields. You can worship God anywhere. But they, they had to rebuild the temple. It was important. Well, they probably didn't stop worshiping God, but they probably just grew used to worshiping the Lord in a way that he was, they, they were not supposed to, that they were not commanded to. They just got, grew used to the ruins of the temple. And this is really the second way in which you can see that their comfort was sinful. They were clearly violating God's will for them by just getting used to it. They got used to the ruins of what was meant to be a glorious place, a lively place of worship of the only God creator of heaven and earth. And I have to say, 19 years is enough time to get used to something, to anything, almost anything. I went to Edinburgh to study, and first time there, I went to um, the university, and I looked out the window, and I saw, there it was, the Edinburgh Castle. It's beautiful, beautiful. And I wondered, how can I study in this magnificent place, you know, with, with all this distraction? And it turns out, uh, it didn't even take 19 years. Soon enough, I was walking past it and not even looking at the place. Uh, my eyes were drawn to the tourists. Now, tourists, tourists are something marvelous to behold, right? They're always ruining things. They're always in your, in your way. I know Green Rapids is not particularly uh, touristy, um, destination, but when you live there, you kind of feel, ah, oh, they're really ruining it. And, but 
There are just some things that one should never get used to. The glory of the place where God himself dwelt, and also the traces of the tragedy that just happened there, an assault on his people. Those two things, the glory and the tragedy, were just blending in the ruins of the temple. And they seemed to not care. They were blended also in the landscape. Yeah. Like that castle, or even better, the Parthenon or the Colosseum, we humans, you and I, we are made in the image of God, and therefore, we are marvelous. But as also happened with those places, we have fallen, and we are now at a ruin. You are a ruin of a marvelous thing, I should say. Don't get, don't, don't get too carried away. You know? You're marvelous, but you're ruined at the same time. It's still beautiful. Ruins of a marvelous thing. We carry those two things, the glory and the tragedy as well. Or perhaps, even closer, we resemble the aftermath in Ground Zero. When you look at the wreckage of human life in yourself, in me, you can only imagine what it was like in its former glory. We are monuments, although in ruins, both that impress by the greatness of our Creator and also by the size of our fall. But we too, we grow used to that, unfortunately. We grow used to how glorious we are. We grow used to how sinful we are. And worst of all, we can grow used to God's great acts of salvation. We can. And then, when we grow used to those things, we start thinking like they thought. And we think that union and communion with God is just a nice thing to have, to have an accessory. But the third way in which their comfort was sinful is they were not willing to invest in order to have the worship of God. Remember, they wanted to have the Lord's house rebuilt. Eventually, that's the catch. Eventually, it's not yet time. Not yet. And as I was reading this, I remember uh, Augustine, or Augustine, St. Augustine, as he prayed mockingly before he was converted. Lord, grant me chastity. Lord, grant me purity in heart. But just not yet, please just not yet. How much are we also guilty of praying something like Augustine? Lord, I really want to see my family worshiping you, but I don't really want to do anything about it. Lord, how much I want my life to display your glory, but it is not yet time for me to do anything about it. Lord, I really want to see your church grow, but I just don't want to do anything about it right now. We pray for things that we are not committed to working towards. That's a fact. And you see, those people wanted to worship God, but without working for it. They wanted to worship Him without sweating. Worship without service. And that is simply not, not possible at all. It is impossible. For many people who go to church, being a Christian is really all about them. I know, I hope it's not your case. But people, a lot of people, make as much about God and about the church and about the people who are seated beside them. They make much, as much about those things as they do about anything else on their TV, for example. Nothing. And even theology can be a mere entertainment for many people. For those of us who are more theologically minded, more intellectual, 
Oh, many times theology can be something comfortable, some entertainment. But pay close attention to keep your priorities right. You will have to work. Work hard for the Lord. You must invest accordingly. If you are going to worship God, you must realize that you are called, you are called to do something similar to a construction worker, to what a construction worker does. You are called to work on the house of the Lord. There is nothing like a Christian whatsoever who has been called by God just to sit there and do nothing. There, there is no such a thing. There's no Christian called by God to sit there and do absolutely nothing. God wants us to invest, to work in his house. Now, if you, like me, perhaps identify with those things, those sins of being way too comfortable, and if you believe that our times and our manners are similar to theirs, what I want to do now is to give you some comfort. You are way too comfortable. Let me give you some comfort. Let me encourage you first. And then, through this courage, you get some comfort. The second thing we need to see here is how God himself rescues people. How he himself loves his people, bringing them to repentance and helping them reprioritize their lives. Read with me uh, verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your full. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. See, they, they were working hard. The Lord never says, you're lazy. The problem is that they're not lazy. They are working hard but they are not being able to enjoy the fruit of their labor. And that's terrible. That's probably one of the most terrible things that can happen to a person. It's called slavery sometimes, right? Why? Why were they not being able to enjoy the, the fruit of their labor? You should guess that they are putting so much time and energy in that that they would be enjoying it. Otherwise, why would they do that? In verse 9, God explains why they were not enjoying. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because my house, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each one of you is busy with your own house. Because the people of God were not prioritizing their union and communion with him, then, because they were not seeking satisfaction in God, therefore, God himself were, was causing their lack of satisfaction. God himself was at work preventing their satisfaction. And more, you can see also in verse 10 and verse 11, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due and the earth, its crops. I called for a drought on the fields of the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labors of your hands. If they were wondering why they were never getting enough, here's an explanation. God does not shy away from it. They might have guessed already, being you know, the people of God, they might have guessed. But God was clear, bluntly. He said, I am behind this. I am doing this. I am causing hardship for you. It's very clear. And maybe you were listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, God is showing his, his wrath. It's a demonstration of God's wrath. And I, I would say, yes, it is a demonstration of God's wrath. But also, I would like to point out and argue that that was actually an expression of God's love just as much. 
Uh, God's wrath is probably one of the least appreciated of the so-called love languages, right? I don't think it's in the book, um, but it is nonetheless. You know, God's wrath is always God's love. God is one, and He's not divided into parts. See in Proverbs, Proverbs uh, three, verses eleven and twelve. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father does to the son in whom he delights. When the Lord brings rebuke to his people, it is actually a love message to them. They were not allowed to find satisfaction anywhere, anywhere else. They were not allowed. God forbid. Literally, God forbid. Compare this with what we see in Romans 1. When Paul is talking about the judgment of God just, uh, towards some people, he says God gave them up to their sins, to their desires, to their lusts and their passions. God gave them up. Here, God is jealous. God is not letting them enjoy. They are not letting them get satisfaction anywhere else. And he provides a path to repentance. He provides a path for them to repent. And finally, find all the pleasure that they need in the Lord. So I ask you, what does this repentance look like? Let's see. Repentance is never simplistic. Never. There are many things to it, and there are layers. It's not a kind of lamentation, you know, that God is requiring from them. God is not saying, oh, just, you know, go do this and um, lament and be sorry. Repentance involves at least two things, and we should say maybe two sides of the same coin. First, repentance is believing God. And second, it means acting upon His Word. Believing God and acting upon His Word. Take a look at verse 8. Go up the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. These are the things that they are supposed to do in repentance. Go up. Go fast. In other words, God will say, don't wait any longer. Don't be bogged down, wondering, is it really time? Or how do I know that this is really true, that I should be doing this? Sometimes that really, really, really slows us down. Those, that thing of, of doubting God's word. No, take it. Take it seriously and take it to the heart. Believe the Lord and then act. There is work to be done. This is a call from the Lord. There is work to be done. And I would say it's both a call to worship and a call to service. And it requires work and faith. I'd like you to listen to the words of the Shorter Catechism, um, question 87, as it talks about repentance. Repentance upon, uh, unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred towards his sin turn from it and unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. So the call of repentance is a call to believe and also a call to act. It is a call to turn away from sin, believe in God, and also a call to turn towards active obedience. And so the people repented. This is wonderful. See, God gave them both a call and also a means to obey. See how similar verses 12 and 14 are. Look at that. And then, try to notice the differences. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Now 14. And the Lord stirred up 
the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. It's said twice. It's almost the same wording. They believed the Lord. They worked. They believed the word of, of, of the Lord to obey Him. And also, God gave them the ability to work. It's not only that they went out to work, but God Himself sent His Spirit. And it's very clear, God stir, stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel and of Joshua and of all the people. See, this is not a simplistic quid pro quo with the Lord or a message of salvation by works. God is not saying, if you don't obey me, you will not get material stuff. If you obey me, then I will give you material stuff. Far from that. And he's not saying, repent and, repent and then work hard, and then I will be your God. No. He is their God. He is with them for them to do this. You can see this. Verse 13. After sending the first message, God also took the prophet and sent the prophet again to say something. The prophet did not say, okay, now you can have your material stuff back. Now you can you know, continue to be materialists. God is not going to bother you anymore. No, he's saying... God is with you. I am with you, says the Lord. And this is the whole point, isn't it, of the temple. This is the whole point of the house of the Lord. It is for God to dwell with his people. God to be Emmanuel with them. But before we go give heed to this calling ourselves today, before we go out and, you know, think, how, how can I build the, the Lord's house? I don't have um, a lot of wood, but I can, I can probably find some in Home Depot. Before we go out to try to implement this, we need to understand some premises, some things that are requirements for this to have happened. And there are basically two things I want to tell you that make this possible for Israel to repent and for Israel to experience exactly this. First, Notice that the sin was a sin of the whole people. The sin was the sin not only of an individual person, but of the whole congregation. However, the prophecy was directed to only two persons. Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. They are the leaders of the people. No one person in Israel could hear this message and go out to the, to the fields and, and take timber and build the house himself. No one would be able to do this. And that was not God's purpose. God's purpose was for that to be a corporate message. It was supposed to be something directed to the whole people, but through the leadership of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. It's important that they, they are the governor and the high priest. I, I, I understand that we don't like the word governor. Uh, recently, we're not liking it very much. But in this, play, in this situation, it was a good thing. Besides this corporate reality, though, it's also important to note that God appointed specifically who would lead the people. It's not someone randomly you know, chosen from the people. God is following his covenant that already existed. He's not building something completely new. He's building something that already existed in his covenant. Zerubbabel was son of Shealtiel, right? So you probably know that he's also the grandson of Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. Same, uh, same person, two names. The last king of Judah who was brought to Babylon in captivity. And if you look there in Matthew 1, you see Jehoiachin, uh, Jeconiah, in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also Zerubbabel. God preserved, even through exile, David's lineage and God's promises to him. 
Remember what God had previously promised to David. His son would build the temple. And now, just like Solomon before him, this other son of David, Zerubbabel, was going to build God's temple. You see, to have fruition of the presence of God, this holy people of God is being redeemed and, and gathered by God. And they needed a representative, a federal head, who was to be obedient and build the house and lead them into it. And when Christ, son of Zerubbabel, son of David, came, he told his disciples about this temple that Zerubbabel had just built some 500 years before him. Mark 14, 58 says, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another, not made with hands, though. Jesus died on that Good Friday. And while his people returned home to their paneled houses, as his people rested from their work, Jesus was rebuilding the temple of the Lord. Just about to appear for the first time on that Sunday. And this is truly a marvelous thing to behold. No imperfection, no ruins of sin or shadow of a former glory. No. Christ is now the temple of the Lord, and He is with us. The Lord has transitioned, finally, from a physical temple to a spiritual one. In Jesus, God is Emmanuel. God with us, not mediated by works of our hands, not mediated by something that was built by human hands, but completely spiritual, made by God Himself. And remember that I said God created His first temple, the Garden of Eden? If you go now to the last page, uh, go to the other side of the Bible, and you find there in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city in New Jerusalem. This is John saying, I saw no temple. He was probably wondering why. And the explanation is, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The final house of the Lord, a house that no one of us will be, would be able to build and who no foreign enemy can destroy. This is the house that the whole history of redemption tells us about. The whole history of redemption is actually a history that shows that through our obedient representative, God himself was building his temple. And finally, we can see in the New Testament, the prophets of Jesus, the apostles, telling us about the church as living stones in Jesus, that we are being built as God's house, as we just read in our scripture reading, and Wayne uh, explained very well. We are the temple of the Lord. Do not get used to the ruins of your life. It's not going to last. God is rebuilding us in the image of Jesus. God is building his temple, his holy city. And no one is going to be able to destroy it. But, oh, 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 the people who want to destroy it. There are not enough bad things in Scripture written about those who would like to destroy this temple. And uh, if you are not working towards building it. You are working against it. Do not get used to the ruins of your life. Do not get used. Do not become materialist. But work for the temple of the Lord. He gives you what you need. To close, 
I would just like to read again from the prophet, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let us pray. Oh Lord, give us grace to serve you. Give us grace with joyful and glad hearts in an abundance of all your grace for us to sing of your salvation and remember your precepts. For great, great, great is your glory, our God. And great is your holy temple, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and was raised again for us to give us union and communion with us. Help us, O Lord, to live in such a way that our Lord Jesus Christ is glorified and that we would enjoy him forever. Amen. Let us now stand and sing again of how much we love the kingdom of God. <clears throat>